the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Like a chrysalis, we're emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution. An economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination, and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Business and the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by SAGE, energizing business builders around the world through the imagination of our people and the power of technology. I'm Ron Baker, along with my good friend, Verisage Institute colleague and co-host, Ed Klass. And on today's show, folks, we are doing more Verisage Laws. Welcome, Ed. Hey, hey, Ron. How you doing? Very good. Still recovering from spending an entire show talking about Karl Marx, but... <laughs> well, it wasn't the entire show, but yeah, I think I think we might have scared a couple people off on that show. Although my early reports uh, seem to indicate that people thought it was, quote, better than they thought it was going to be. So I'm going to take that as a big win. Yeah, me too. Me too. It's a it's a tough topic, but uh, yeah, we 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 talked about it in the, at least in the business context. So I thought that was really good. Yeah, absolutely. So today, a little bit more. Uh, let's call it down to earth, uh, but still theoretical. That's just who we are, the content junkies that we are. And we're, we're talking about Verisage laws. Now, these are, I guess, the, the best way to describe these, Ron, would be the collective sayings, mantras of the folks that we know at the Verisage Institute, right? Some of them are, are things that you've come up with. Some are things that I've come up with. Some of them are probably stolen from other places, but we attribute them to people we know. Because it's more fun that way, right? <laughs> they're they're axioms, they're sayings, and and like we talked about, we we did this show, folks, uh, Verisage Laws back in July twenty fourth, two thousand and fifteen, and we covered five five of these laws, and and we'll do a recap of that. But I, I think Ed, these have become part of our vocabulary. They've been part, you know, part of the way we see the world. I think mm-hmm. a lot of them, if if not all of them, are grounded in empirical evidence. Uh, some some of these laws reflect my mind being changed based on what I've seen, what I've experienced, right? Um, and so they just become part of the collective wisdom and, and part of our vocabulary. Right, right. And just things that, in, in many cases, they're answers to questions that people have, right? When when people, I, I know when I'm, I'm presenting and talking to folks, a lot of these things will pop into my head based on the, the question that somebody is asking. And of course, one of the things I have to remember is let them finish the question because I've usually, am, I'm, a, I'm still a solutionist at heart, Ron. So as soon as sure. I'm like, yep, I know, I know the answer to this one. I know okay, the answer me- to that, yep. <laughs> That's one of the hardest things to just back off and and not, you know, shout out, well, this is what you need to do. Yeah, right, right, right. And to recognize that them asking the question is actually part of the process. 
right? Yes. And that if you interrupt their question, then, well, you're, po- you're, you're, po- you're possibly shutting down the possibility that they will accept your answer because you shut down their question too soon. So you got to remember yeah, that. Yeah, because you, you, you have. You've screwed with their process. It's kind of like going in and cleaning up somebody's desk, right? Mm-hmm. You've, you've messed with their head yep. metaphorically. Yep. <laughs> Yep. <laughs> That's so, why I don't believe in clean desk policies, by the way. I think they're ridiculous no, for knowledge workers. But Yeah, heck no. And gosh, I'm very glad that we do not do a, a, a broadcast of video on this show because it's pretty embarrassing, really. Oh, no, no kidding. My place looks like a tornado came through. But <laughs> so, so, Ed, when we did the show back in July 24th, it was show 53, folks, and we'll post this on the show notes. We actually got through six of our laws. I thought was pretty good. Yeah. And the first one is probably the one that most people know about, um, at at least who follow us, and that's Baker's Law, that bad customers drive out good customers. Right, right. And that's a follow-on to, I forget who the guy is, is Godwin's Law or something uh, like that? Gresham. Gresham's Law. Law. Bad money drives out good money. Right, right, right. And God I think was is Hitler. Is, is it, do you know that one? That's like every every Facebook chat eventually comes down to Hitler. Hitler, <laughs> yes, <laughs> I've heard that. Um, and, and this one, I, I think I said this on the show, but this is a result of, of flying too much, uh, and just as <laughs> especially in light of United Airlines' recent fiasco, which I'm sure oh. we'll talk about next oh. week on Good on Free Rider Friday. Um, but, you know, the, the whole idea of, of how disproportionate amount of capacity and brain power and emotional capacity and risk uh, is, is ab- absorbed by, by low-value customers. I don't mean bad people. I mean, when we say bad customers, I mean low-value. We mm-hmm. can't add much more value to them. Right. And so we talked about all the ramifications of that. And the, the funny thing was in professional firms, we both agreed it's been our experience that it's very difficult to get a firm to, you know, uh, replace a customer, outsource them, remove them, fire them, however you want to say it. Uh, sure. Because like our late colleague Paulo Burns said, uh, CPAs, we don't, we don't fire customers, they fire us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Way more often. In any professional service organization, way, way more often you will get fired by the customer rather than you fire the customer. So, yeah, it's, a, it's, it's an important thing. And, and the sad thing about it is they do take up capacity and they, I think they prevent you from uh, making investments in your better customers who already love you, willing to pay a premium. Uh, and, and they also uh, steal capacity from your best customers which right. is, is a nightmare, especially now as most accountants are experiencing busy season. Uh, that's a classic example of having, you know, strained capacity. And if one of your best customers comes in and says, hey, I need this tomorrow, you just look at them like they're crazy. I can't do that until after, you know, April 18th or whatever. And that's not the way it should work. You should always have spare capacity. I think you talked about your dentist. You know, you don't want your dentist to have uh, 100% capacity, because if you have an emergency, you want them to be able to say, yeah, come on down, Ed, we'll work you in. Right, right. And not not tell me, oh, sorry, I can't fit you in for two weeks because we're we're at 100% capacity or over capacity. So the, the other thing, and I know I probably mentioned this on the on the previous show, but it's 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 so important. And if you listen to this show and then go back and listen to the other show, it's OK to hear it twice. And that is this this measurement that uh, not really measurement, that, but this discussion of understanding emotional capacity as opposed to just capacity in terms of time, 
right? And and I'm I'm really really big on this concept because because I think it's so important. And you, you and I have both had days, Ron, where you the first thing you do in the morning you're you're spent for the entire day from an emotional standpoint even though it only took you maybe 15 minutes oh yeah right and your emotional capacity is done for the day even though you have you know eight hours to fill the rest of the day you know and that's where we get to i think i'm just gonna you know cruise social media for a while because you you can't emotionally handle anything else and I think it's important for professionals to to keep those things in mind, keep their emotional capacity in mind more than even their their capacity from an hours standpoint, right? And and I think that that's that's critical because you get you can get burnt out so quickly if you're draining yourself emotionally. Yeah, the first time I heard that uh, was from our colleague Daryl Golem. Now you probably heard it from Howard Hansen and right. uh, and Healing Leadership. But the, the his concept of emotional capacity, he basically said, "Look," he said, uh, "Every customer, because he does coaching too, takes up a certain amount of frontal lobe, and if if I'm going to dedicate that amount to them and think about them in the shower and the car and whatnot, except they're not willing to pay my price, then I'd rather be at the beach with my kids." Right. Yep. And that dramatically increased his price. So love that. And the, the second law we talked about, Ed, was your first law. Right. <laughs> so this is Kless's first law. And it was he who liveth by the discount shall ye also perish by the discount. Yes. I made that as difficult to say as possible. So, yeah. Uh, so nobody could steal it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but it's a good one because I know you hate the word discount. You rather see people use preferred price or maybe promotional price because it, it conveys that, that, hey, this is limited, might be a one-time thing. Mm-hmm. And, and when you say discount, you just cheapen yourself. But also, too, I think you, you actually educate your customers to expect a discount or to ask for one. That's exactly correct. And that's really what, what this is referring to is the, once you once you offer the quote discount and by discount, I'm very specific. I mean a, a unilateral reduction in price for some reason, like some bizarre reason. But we're actually really for almost no reason or no, no rational reason. And by the way, I don't think that the position of the earth in its revolution around the sun, to, I don't find that to be a rational reason. Yeah, pricing astrology, or, or right. and, and and I think we talked about Oracle and SAP and what percentage of their revenue comes on from the last day of the quarter. Or the <laughs> you know it's insane because they they've taught their customers this, so they've created little Pavlovs. Right, right, exactly correct. So that that's what I mean, and and also I think that that, that you get into that cycle of discounting, and you end up just just eating into your overall profitability. So big problem there. So anyway. Let me tell you the second, my second law, because I think it was the second came after the first, and, and this was a riff on something we learned from Peter Block, and that is that all measurements are actually judgments in disguise, and that when you really think about it, there is no such thing as an objective measurement because it's, it's deciding what to measure is part of that decision. So you're, by saying we're going to measure this, it means you've made a judgment that that's important and you've deemed that thing to be important. So therefore, it's there is a de facto judgment that always and everywhere happens before a measurement. Yeah, I love this because I, I think in the knowledge environment, judgments are far more important than measurements. And if you think about it from the customer standpoint, you know, they're not measuring the 
bedside manner of a doctor or your communication skills or your pride or your professionalism, but they are experiencing it. That's correct. So they, so they are making judgments about it and judgments are critical. And I don't know why, but b- people in business have a fear of judgments and subjectivity. They, I mean, this comes back to this idea that they rather be precisely wrong rather than approximately right. And quite frankly, I'd rather be approximately right. Yep. Nope. Absolutely. I think that those are those are important important things to keep in mind. And what's what's the fourth one, Ron? We did uh, Baker's axiom, and this was the controversial one. Ideas are always and everywhere more important than their mere execution. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and this is the one where people get physical and they come up to you and go, "You're wrong about that. that's crazy. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard." It's all right. about execution. And, you know, our response to that is, look, there's no good way to execute a bad idea. Mm-hmm. You want to talk about communism? You want to talk about Napoleon invading Russia? You want to talk about socialism? Were these, were these be- poor execution? Is, is communism poor execution? Mao didn't do it right. Castro didn't do it right. Kim Jong-un didn't do it right. Stalin didn't, right, didn't do it right. Or is it an inherently flawed idea? Mm-hmm. Like performance yep. appraisals. I don't yep. care how good you execute them. It's a flawed idea. Mm-hmm. And the last one, Ed, was uh, uh, something you coined, which uh, you stole, I think, from the second law of medicine. But I've loved this ever since I heard you say it. Prescription before diagnosis is malpractice. Yep. No, absolutely. It's just kind of our adoption of that second law of medicine. And I, I think that it's critically important for for uh, professionals to keep that in mind. And hey, going back to the first thing that I talked about this morning, and that is trying to answer somebody's question before they get the question out. Right. And, and it's it's in alignment with that as you're diagnosing the situation uh, or you're, you're sometimes prescribing before you fully diagnose the situation. Well, all right, Ron. So I think this is a pretty good recap of what what the first couple laws were. And now in our second segment, what we'll do is we'll get to some others. And we've got tons of them, folks. This, we, Ron was saying this might end up being a series at some point. But we want to let you know that in order to contact Ron or me, you can email us at Ask, A-S-K-T-S-O-E, for the soul of enterprise, asktsoe at verisage.com. Also, our website, thesoulofenterprise.com, is always available where you can go listen to show 53, our previous show on this, as well as all previous shows that we've done. But right now, we want to hear from our sponsor, Leading Results. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. You've experienced it. Marketing and selling has changed dramatically in the last few years. The search engine has completely altered the way customers buy. Your clients are now driving the process their way. At Leading Results, we know how to work with this. We don't just jump in and start doing. Together, we plan your marketing strategy. Install a website that gets results and create lead generation programs that drive sales. Visit leadingresults.com slash TSOE to find out more and to schedule a 30-minute conversation with us. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the forward to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. 
The value of this book is found entirely in its forward. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the forward and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. The business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. You know, Ron, the other law that we talked about, but we only talked about it briefly on show 53, was one that we... I don't know if it's Peter Drucker actually said it was his law. We extracted it. As with a lot of these things, we're we're extracting these things at laws. But I think this is an important one, and I don't think that we really went deep into it. So maybe we can talk a little bit more about this. And that's Peter Drucker's law, which is marketing and sales are not complementary, but adversarial. And I think this is hugely controversial, although it's controversial. But once when you talk to marketing people and salespeople, they, they're like, well, yeah, <laughs> that's because we, we're always butting heads and they, I don't think they really fully understand why. So let's, let's, let's dissect this one a little bit. What are your, your initial thoughts on it? Yeah, Ed, boy, when I first, you know, I've read a lot of Drucker and mm-hmm. I did not read this in any of Drucker's books. Drucker actually used to talk about this topic in the classroom and now that he's passed away, uh, several of his doctorate students, especially his first one, I think a guy named Cohen, I'll get the book in the show notes, but he's the one that that I read this in, in his book about Drucker in the classroom. Mm. And I had to read the page again. I'm like, what? What did he say? Now, he did say in a perfect world, marketing and selling are not complementary. They are adversarial. And what he was saying is if your marketing is really, really good, perfect you know, perfect world good, then you wouldn't need sales because the customer would be pulling your product down, right? And Mm -hmm. every time we talk about this, of course, the company that comes to mind is, is of course, Apple, you know, people Mm -hmm. lining up every time new iPhone, iWatch, whatever comes out. And you think about it, yeah, Apple doesn't have salespeople. They have relationship people, you know, the people in the stores trying to sell you things, or they're actually trying to develop a relationship with you. And it, this is really controversial, but our colleague, Tim Williams, who's a marketing expert, former ad guy and all of that, he loves this and thinks it's absolutely true. Now, you, you would say, well, of course he would. He's a marketer. Um, salesmen, I found, don't like this, do they? No, they don't. But but they, they will admit to it because in, in so many cases in, inside you know companies, the, the and I think this is – well, let me back up a second. This isn't on any one set of people. It's not on the marketers. It's not on the salespeople. It's on the the nature of the relationship between the two. But there are some things that I think are important to 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 dissect about it. And one is the observation that Tim Williams make about the default purpose of marketing. Right? Many people think that the default purpose of marketing is to create sales. And or and in a lot of cases, it's restated as leads, right? We need the leads, the, you know, Glenn Gary, Glenn, Glenn Ross, right? I need, right. I need the Glenn Gary leads, right? What's the that leads line? Suck. Ed, the, 
no, no, nothing happens until a sale is made, right? That's, right. that's the classic the, line, yeah. That's the classic line. And and what is oftentimes thought is like marketing throws up his hands. He say, look, we generated a thousand leads, right? And like in Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, they're like, yeah, but the leads are crap, <laughs> except they don't say crap, all right? <laughs> and but, but marketing says, well, we did our job, though. We, we got you the leads, Right? Is it our fault that you can't close them? I said, well, but, and then this gets to a big, whole, convoluted discussion of what's a lead, what's a hot lead, what's a prospect, what's a suspect, what's a this, what's a that, what percent of the way through the sales process are they, what's the likelihood they're going to they're gonna buy. And look, it, as I think it's Plato, all wisdom begins with the definition of terms. This is one of the big things that, that people often mistake is that, hey, listen, uh, w- what do we mean by a lead? Right. I can I can I can generate you leads. I can give you something and say it's a lead. But if what you're thinking a lead is and what I'm thinking a lead is, is two different things. Well, then we'll neither one of us are going to be satisfied. And then I think that leads to the adversarial part of it. You know, the the, the reality is, is that that and, and Tim goes further in saying that the default, the, the default purpose of marketing is to create profit, which presupposes a sale in a way, right? It presupposes not only a sale, but a profitable one. And I think that's an important point. Right. And it's a, yeah, just because just like leads can be bad and good, uh, uh, sales can too. I mean, uh, part of Tim's wisdom here uh, is that, hey, it's really easy to crank up sales or crank up revenue. You just reduce your price, right? Airlines can fill the planes, just reduce the price. But that's not the point. The point is to go for the profit and for that, you need the right customer at the right price. And that's why, and you know, this also goes back to Drucker's marketing concept where he says the two basic functions of any business are innovation and marketing. Now, if you think about that, those are the only two that create results. You know, everything else creates costs and is internally focused. And that's, that's a really profound statement that I still think is not accepted. I mean, people see it and they read it and they go, they sh- they nod their head, but I don't think they understand the ramifications of it. No, I would I would definitely agree with that, that it's, it's not fully embraced. Well, because they have a visceral reaction to it at first, and it, it, sometimes you just can't get past the visceral reaction. And I, but I do think that once people begin to think about it, they'll they see they see the wisdom behind it and they see that this means okay that means we have to worry about this vicious cycle of of things repeating themselves we have to change how we think about it and as we talked about on another show sometimes it's about asking a new and better question than it is about just asking the same question over and over again i.e how do we get more leads right right and i think sometimes too and this might be unfair and salespeople probably don't like this either but i think sales is is more susceptible to devolving into tactical maneuvers and while marketing needs to be more strategic. Hmm. I'd have to process the one, but my, my, my gut reaction is to say, yeah, I think you're right about that initially. I mean, let's face it, sales, if, if, if you just look at it the way an economist would look at it, sales are incented to sell. Quickest right. way to sell, cut the price. While the marketers hate that, the pricers more than anybody probably hate that even more. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that's because it's going to it's gonna ruin the brand or degrade their pricing integrity. Mm-hmm. And just like the uh, pricer from Marriott said, you, you know, you don't want to train your customers 
to, you know, not book and, and just walk into the hotel and go, oh, you have an open room, 300 bucks? How about 200? He mm-hmm. said, we'll never take that. They right. have a term for it, the fade. Yep. Yep. And yeah, ne- I, this is one, please never, never give salespeople the authority to set price. And that includes to a certain extent that discounting that we were talking about earlier. So yeah, salespeople should not be setting price at all, ever. That that's, that's, should be the job of the pricer. And it's the job of the salespeople really to create or investigate the value behind it. And I, I like I, I would, would have often joked, but it would be interesting to see if a professional firm ever did this to rather than have salespeople have value investigators. Right. Right. They're, that their, their job is to have the value conversation and investigate if there's enough value here to continue the conversation and to potentially then do business together. Yep. At, at the least to pre-qualify you know, I mean, pre-qualification is, is usually one half of, of the art of selling, mm-hmm. right? Making sure you're, you're in front of the right customer. And, and I, I don't see much pre-qualification going on, especially in professional firms. They seem to want to take all comers, and I, that's a serious mistake. Mm, agreed. Agreed. That, get, this, that gets back to strategy question, which is what are, what are you going to say no to, including those potential customers? So. All right, Ron. We got a, a few minutes left here. Can we we begin to talk about another one? What do you got? What do you got in your queue on on Verisage laws? Well, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna throw one at you because you said this. I don't know if it's a law, <laughs> it's an axiom. I know I know it's a quote from somebody you respect, uh, who says plans are worthless, planning is essential. Yeah. And this is attributed, I, I have not seen the exact direct citation, but it is very often attributed to the, the person that I consider to be the project manager of the 20th century. <laughs> it was, he was that good. And yes. the reason, reason why he was that good is because his project that he was in charge of, 90% of it did not go according to plan, yet 90% of the objectives were met. And I'm telling you that as a a mere mortal project manager myself, that ain't never going to happen. Like if I'm on a project and 90% does not go according to plan, I am am getting nowhere near achieving 90% of the objectives right we're in I, failure mode yeah. that's right that's right it's not it's not even not even going to be close so he he really did a a, a great job with this and I, I think what's what's important to to note about that is is what he's talking about is the plan itself right the actual physical plan the thing that you read Right. What we in project management would call the, the you know scope, resource, communications, risk, activity, uh, and, and and communications. All of these and quality. Forgot quality. That all of those things together are the project plan. That that document itself has no inherent value in and of itself. It's the creation of this document, going through the process of developing the plan where you get the value. And, you know, oftentimes professionals are, are put in this spot mostly because they haven't studied the discipline of project management enough. And they get told by their, their customers or prospects, well, you know, you're the expert, right? Don't you know how to do this? Right. And, <laughs> and the reply has to be, well, yes, and the expert is telling you that you have to plan, 
right? That's that's the response. Yes, yes, I am an expert, and the expert is telling you that you need to go through this process of developing a plan. And and I, I am constantly surprised by how many professionals are are put back on their heels when someone says to them, "Well, you're just the expert. Why don't you you, you should know what to do." Right? right, and the answer is yes. I know what to do, and it's create a plan because they're each one is individual and different. And Ron, when we get back, I'll reveal who this project manager of the 20th century is. Although I'm so- sure some of you already know it because this uh, quote has been out there a lot. But we will talk about who that who that person is and why I think this person was, and tell you a, a, a detailed story about it. But want to remind you again that you can get a hold of Ron and myself at Ask. T-S-O-E at Verisage.com. In addition to the website, we also uh, would love for you to visit our iTunes store. Again, the soul of enterprise.com slash iTunes will take you directly to the iTunes page where you can write a review and rate our podcast. We love for you to do that. The soul of enterprise.com slash book is a place where you can go to see our, our book that is available. Uh, please buy it on Amazon and then rate it. Makes a wonderful Mother's Day present, by the way, Ron. So just keep that in <laughs> mind. It's coming up now in uh, about a month month or so. So, yep, it, the soul of enterprise for your mom. But right now we want to hear for a word from our sponsor. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the forward to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its forward. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the forward and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480 294 6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Plans are worthless. Planning is essential. 
And we left, I left you hanging on that in the last segment there. But that, that quote is attributed to the project manager of the 20th century, in my opinion. And this guy's name, Ron, is Dwight David Eisenhower. You might have heard of him. He ran this yeah. little little project called D-Day. <laughs> a little, little project. And, uh, you know, it was interesting in project management parlance, a group of related projects is called a program. So I often joke that the, it's the same thing in, in, in uh, war, right? Battles are projects. And the, the, the whole war is a program, is a group of related battles, right? Mm-hmm. So there's a, a direct analogy there. But yeah, he in D-Day, 90% did not go according to plan, yet they met 90% of the objectives. And one of the things, Ron, I don't know if you're aware of this, but D-Day was su- supposed to actually be June 5th. We know it is June 6th. Right. But it was supposed to be that, yep, the weather screwed him up. And one of the, the, the challenges that this posed, <clears throat> excuse me, was, the, was they had these blow-up, like, armored divisions they knew they had broken the 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 german code right that enigma code so they knew when the 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 reconnaissance aircraft were flying over so what they did was is they had had these these canvas tanks and armored divisions that when the german uh, germans flew over i think it was someplace in scotland it would it would look like they were going to about to invade calais instead of the you know normandy and what happened was, is they said, okay, hey, we're not going today. We're going tomorrow. You got to take all these things down. Well, the plan to take them down was to go walk through these fields with machetes and just slice through them. So they had to come up with this this convoluted thing to 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 bring these these things back down so that they can put them back up tomorrow. And just what I mean, what a logistical nightmare. You know, it, it, those of us in professional firms, right? If we're a day late with a project, that's not even late. Right, <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, that's not. I mean, really. But if you're a, a day late when you got a, you know, a million and a quarter Germans wanting you dead, um, that's probably a pretty big deal. So, um, anyway, Dwight David Eisenhower, the project manager of the 20th century. The, the the other thing that interests me about this, Ed, the plans are worthless. Planning is essential. You know, we did a show on after action reviews, what we think is the best learning method out there. And the first question in an after-action review is, what were the objectives of this mission? Right. Do you think it's and, – and when you facilitate, as you do so many after-action reviews, you realize that the people in the AAR, they didn't understand the objectives. Is that part of why these of why the planning is so essential? So it is. So on the same page as to the objectives? Oh gosh, and it's such a simple thing, Ron. You would you would think that that professionals who've been in practice for so long would get this, but just just to have a series of of written objectives. The way I like to think about it is every every project has to have at least one objective, but they usually have somewhere between three and eight, right? That's right. like it, that that's the the variance. Not always. Sometimes they're very small and they only have one, but. So no more than eight. In fact, if you get over eight, I'm oftentimes saying, well, then you probably have more than one project, mm-hmm. right? Just kind of a rule of thumb but to, to say, hey, listen, this is when you might might start to think about breaking this into into two different things. So so let, let's just call it five, right? So you got – how hard is it to write down five sentences, say these are what – we're, these are the objectives, what, what's going to happen, and send them over to the customer and say, hey, just say, are we on the same page here? Approve this. Right. Right? Right. Yeah. And I, I mean, I, I'm constantly amazed when I do do after action reviews, how oftentimes when I ask that question, so, you know, what were the objectives? And they're like, well, 
Um, I think it was kind of that, like they were not they were not written down. There was that, nope. Huh? Maybe that's something you should do different next time. Just a little suggestion. <laughs> and and you know, like we interviewed Jody Thompson from the Results Only Work Environment Culture RX, and I remember her saying and even writing in the book that when you're in a when you're in that type of work environment and you give somebody a project, you're going to be very clear on what those objectives are, because that's what you're holding them accountable for. In fact, that's all you're holding them accountable for. So they want to make darn sure that they understand very, very clearly what your expectations are of those objectives. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And let me, let me just clarify something here quickly, because it, 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 it's so important. And I know I've talked about this on the show previously, but it's, but it's, it's, it's something that has to be ingrained in people. And that is the difference between a goal and an objective in a project and goals are that to which we aspire, but might not happen. The value conversation, the results of that value conversation, that those aspirational, hey, we're going to make a million dollars or save a million dollars or whatever those things are, those are goals. Those are not objectives. Because oftentimes the, the goals, those aspirational things, that val- the, the, val- the, the, the results of the value conversations are often things that won't happen for three, six, nine, 12, even 18 months after the completion of the engagement. Right. So that can't be tied to the completion of it, right? So what you have to say, the objectives are things that are going to happen on or before a specific date, right? And the, the acronym is SMART, right? S-M-A-R-T, specific, measurable, attainable, relevant, and time-sensitive. And there are a couple of different variations on that SMART acronym, but specific, measurable, attainable, relevant, and time-sensitive. And the T is that time-sensitive is an important one to say, this, it will be done by this date, right? And things that are aspirational, by definition, are not. So you must separate those two things out. Don't, ha- don't mix up goals and objective. I hear professionals regularly ask the question that way. So what are your goals and objectives? And they're, and, and they're interchangeable, but they are absolutely not. And that's a critical point. Right. Yeah, great point. Great point. And good law. <laughs> Thank you, David yeah. Dwight Eisenhower. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we have one that that uh, our our colleague Kirk Bowman, also you know, who lives here in Allen, Texas, has come up with, and and this is one that I know is near and dear to your heart, and that is this: hourly billing requires a calculator. Value pricing requires courage. So unpack that one for us, Ron. I, I just love this. I've, Kurt says this on his own podcast, The Art of Value, which, folks, we highly recommend. It's it's excellent. And uh, he says this there. I think he said it maybe at one of our Verisage meetings. I, I don't remember, but it, it really struck me because it's so true that, you know, hourly billing is the most simple rote thing. You just fill out a timesheet, you feed it into the computer or an app or whatever, a bill spits out after the fact. You end up sitting in your office and looking at that bill going, oh, we could never charge a client that. They'll never pay for that and write it off, write, you know, write off a certain amount. And it's like playing chess with yourself, right? Mm-hmm. But it doesn't require anything else other than just a rote calculation and, and you to track time, which can be done now with an app. Whereas value pricing, what, what he means by courage, I think, is, is far more than just um, – you know, being brave, it means you have to have a process, you have to have a value conversation, you have to understand your worth 
courage and, and self, whether you call it self-esteem or self-respect, you have to understand what you're worth and, and, and where your line is, what you won't go below. And that's why I, I just love this because value pricing, I do believe, is a game that's played more between your ears uh, than anywhere else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, between your ears. not And I've heard you also say it this way, that pricing is a terrorist. And by that, mean you mean it, it terrorizes yourself. Because the, the seller is way more wrapped up in, and I think, concerned with price or nervous about putting forward a price than, than the buyer, right? Yeah. And, and and you've got to be able to get get past that and 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 as you say the the self-esteem or confidence uh, as Reed Holden would put it pricing with confidence be confident in stating your price because you know you can't say uh, you know well that's five thousand dollars but if you really want we could do it for less you know? <laughs> <laughs> you know and I think the other thing too is just part of that courage is having that discussion up front and one of the questions we love to ask firms is when do you want to find out the customer doesn't like your price before mm-hmm. you do the work or after if you find out after you have no options other than to write down or write off or have the client leave none of which are great outcomes even if the customer stays i would argue that the relationship took a hit to trust and as they say you know trust walks in takes time to develop but it gallops away pretty fast you can lose trust overnight Right? Yeah, you can Our- use, use trust very quickly, even after building it for years. That's a, one of the weird things about trust is that it, it can it can go away extraordinarily quickly. And and I do want uh, firms to agonize over their pricing. I do want them to worry about it more than their customers because that means they're putting thought into it. They're mm-hmm. putting creativity in it, maybe developing options. But they still have to have that underlying courage to, to know what their worth is and know where the line is that they, they're not going to go below. That's just not going to happen and know the, the value they can create. And, and that does require courage and bravery. And that's why I just love uh, Bowman's law. I'm calling it Bowman's law. Love it. But well, but that's also one of the reasons why in, in our, in our, talks about how to create price that we always want you to develop your reserve price or walk away price and really think about that what is the price that you will do this that if they ask you for your a, a, you know that if it was your mom asking you to do it for a dollar lower you'd say sorry mom can't do it right and, and I, I have a great story on this and just then talk about courage this was excellent I one of my black swans uh, got into an engagement and she worked for on it for, I think it was six months or a year, and figured out that she woefully underpriced it. And that's pretty common. And you want to go back to the customer. And, of course, you want to adjust that price and kind of prove your worth and show them all the things that you've done and the outcomes that you've generated for them. But she was very, very nervous to bring this up. I said, look, you've got to have this conversation. I know it's a difficult conversation, but you got to have it. you got to, you got to go in with documentation and prove it. And... She did, and they said, well, look, we just don't have uh, what the price that you want in our budget. Why don't you do this? Why don't you take our budget and find us the money? Mm. <laughs> and then I've never, I've never encountered that before, and she did, and she got her price. And it was a nice price increase, and, and plus they even increased the option they selected. So it was a it's, you know, two-prong upping in the price. Uh, but that was really that took great courage on her part, and I just, I, I just think that's great the way she handled it. But she had the guts to do it. Great story, great story, Ron. 
So, well, folks, this is just flying by as we know it would. We have so many of these, but I uh, would like to remind you, you can send Ed or myself an email at asktsoe at verisage.com. Many of you write us and, and you know that Ed and I, are. We'll, you'll probably get a comment or a reply from the both of us. And please check out the show notes at thesoulofenterprise.com and also check out up there our calendar tab where you can find out where Ed and I will be live. I know, Ed, we got the Sage Summit coming up, which is your Super Bowl, and maybe we can talk a little bit more about that. But, folks, in the meantime, we want to hear from our sponsor, Sage. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Wherever your business is headed, Sage has the cloud solution you need to enable mobile accounting and simplify financial management. Discover how moving your financial data and accounting processes to the cloud can transform your business. Cloud accounting software from Sage can help you make better decisions, drive faster responses, and gain greater control. That's cloud accounting for the journey. For more information, visit sage.com forward slash US forward slash SOE. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the forward to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its forward. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the forward and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Welcome back, everybody. We're doing more Verisage Laws. And Ed, since we're uh, recounting some laws from our colleagues at Verisage, Let's talk about one from uh, one of the co-founders of Verisage, Dan Morris. He's a practicing CPA in Silicon Valley. And he, for several years, was the keynote at a big funeral conference, funeral parlors and undertakers, things like that. And when he went to these conferences, all he heard was, oh, the funeral's becoming a commodity Right, you can buy a casket at Costco for four hundred dollars. You can get cremated at Neptune for six hundred bucks. We're, you know, we're becoming a commodity. And mm-hmm. Dan heard this, you know, over the course of several days from these guys, like at breakout sessions or wherever he was, talking in the bar at lunch and whatever. And this was the first year he delivered this speech, which is why I think they kept inviting him back. By the way, but when he closed out the conference with his final keynote, he said, "Look, I've been hearing about this commodity thing." for this entire conference and he paused and he said, I want to ask you all a question. What would happen if Disney entered the funeral business? And 
Now, I wasn't there when he did this, but I uh-huh. asked him what what happened in the room, right? He's in this big ballroom, I think, you know, three, 500 people. It's a pretty major conference. And he said, you could have heard a pin drop. There was just like stunned silence. I said, yeah, I bet. I mean, in my mind, that's an example of a fantastic question that just stops people in their tracks and, and really gets them thinking. Oh, it is. It's a terrific question because it's it's a, it's cer- certainly on po- on describing possibilities, and, but it it does give you this this kind of weird nebulous feeling like, well, why would Disney enter the funeral business? And like, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. <laughs> doesn't matter. Right. That's not the point, right? <laughs> it, it it's it's just thinking about that in terms of well, what if Disney got into a decided to do accounting firms and you're like, well, Disney would never do that. Doesn't matter. That's not the that's not the point, right? They would make it fun, right? They would figure out a way to make it entertaining. They would the, the imagineering, right? They would they would run it through a process of of being creative and innovative around the mundane, because after all, they've taken you know the joke is Disney lines, but heck, people like being online at Disney at Disney properties, right? They keep it going, they keep it entertained. Yep. Even if even if the 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 task is mundane, like standing online, uh, they can change the experience. And and I'm not saying that they can go into a law firm and and you know make it make people cry and weep and bring. I mean, that's not the point. The point is they can change the experience to make it more human, mm-hmm. and think about it from the customer's standpoint. And, and do the customer mapping, you know, the moments of truth and all the things that they go through, like we talked about on the show with the parking lot and, mm-hmm. you know, people leave their engines running and all of that. But there's no, and, and the other part that I love about this question is obviously if Disney did enter your industry, they certainly wouldn't compete on price. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and it's not because Disney doesn't have competition. That's an enormous fallacy. You know, they have Universal Studios down the street and SeaWorld, and there's a ton of other amusement parks in, in Florida. They have enormous competition. They have union issues, all of that. But boy, I'll tell you, when it comes to pricing and delivering value, they're masters at it. And that type of thinking, you know, going back to Drucker's idea of innovation and marketing being the two most important things, that's why innovation is so important. And I think this question just kind of frees people up and liberates them to start thinking along those lines. Yeah, so true. And I think I mentioned this on our Disney show, but you know, it took it took me I honestly years to rec- to realize that downtown Disney equals mall. Like I just had never put that together. It's like, wait a minute, it's just a mall. Yep. <laughs> but but it's not, it's downtown Disney. <laughs> and and I'm paying to park or whatever. I mean, you yeah. know, this is something Joe Pine talks about, but you know, he thinks Disney stores in the mall should should charge for admission. Because then it would probably be a better experience. And I, I, I tend to agree with that. And I, I just think this is such a great question. And we've used it since. I've certainly used it since in, in, for, in front of lawyers and accountants. And, and boy, it really does make people think. And, and the way that we've, I've implemented this, Ron, is I usually do this as an exercise, right? Where what I would do is I, I break, break a group up. And it doesn't have to be a, a, a if you have 30 people, break them up into groups of five or six or something. But even in a small organization, just sit down, you know, three, four people and, and just brainstorm what, what, would, what would Disney do if they entered our in- industry? What, just, just go through what those processes are. And then 
get the, brainstorm through that list of all of the crazy ideas that you will come up with and maybe spend 10, 15 minutes on that. Then try to prioritize, all right, of these ideas, which, which ones can we reinterpret in some way for our firm that would, could make them into a reality? Even if it's some, something like, what could we do in, in our front lobby so that when people come into our, our, our building, they experience something different? You know, if it's putting a, a, a free soda machine or, or refrigerator or whatever out in the lobby to say, hey, listen, please, if you're if you're thirsty, take something some some way to 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 give them a better experience. Because what I, what I find is oftentimes once you think around the notion of Disney or it doesn't have to be Disney, any kind of high level, high service organization with a little creativity, you can begin to adapt some of the crazy stuff that you come up with, but turn it into something that's much more practical and tangible inside your organization. Yeah, I remember Paul Dunn talked about one firm that just, you know, put up who, who was ever coming into the office that day. I think it was an accounting firm. They just had, you know, they had a plasma screen behind the receptionist desk and they had the person's name, you know, welcome Ed Kless mm-hmm. to so-and-so. And, and, and I think the same firm also, when people were in the firm having their meeting, their car was being washed and detailed in the parking lot. Mm-hmm. And I thought, wow, how neat is that? You know, uh, <laughs> get your car washed while you're, you know, writing a check to the government in your accountant's office. Yep, yep. Well, I have, I have my, my car serviced at a, at a dealership here. And I started going there. I can tell you about 12, well, as long as that, 13, 14 years ago. And I'll give you the specific reason. Free Wi-Fi. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. You know? And yeah. they gave me gave me free Wi-Fi like at, at a cup of coffee, and I was like, well, I I can work here for a couple of hours while they change my oil and do whatever. I'm more apt to say to for, to have them do things that I need done because I'm I'm sitting here. It's fine. That's <laughs> if I got an extra. Yep, no problem. I don't have to be anywhere. Yes, go ahead and and change my air filter. You know. So in the last minute and a half or so that we have, we're coming up on on one of the Sage Summits in Atlanta. I think mm-hmm. it's what May May uh, May ninth, eleventh. Yep, May ninth, tenth, and eleventh in in Atlanta in Midtown. We hope to have you there if you're interested in coming. Please just shoot me an email, and you might, as a friend of Ed, I might be able to get you a, a, a deal. Um, but but we we would love to see those of you who listen to the show. Please come by. In fact, we're going to do a record an episode there, Ron, the Soul of Enterprise Live. We're going to be interviewing different people in the accounting profession and, and see what, what they, they have to offer. So it's going to be it's going to be a fun, fun place to be. So sagesemmet.com is the website there. But if you want more information, shoot us an email, ask TSOE at verisage.com. Yeah, folks, take care. Uh, take take advantage of that Ed discount. It's pretty special. So Ed, what's on <laughs> store for next week? Well, next week, Ron, we are back into our normal end-of-month routine, and that is going to be Free Rider Friday. All right. I'll be interested to see if United Airlines comes up. No, I'm sure. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I'll see you in 167 hours. This has been the Soul of Enterprise, Business and the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by Sage. 
energizing business builders around the world through the imagination of our people and the power of technology. Join us next week, folks, on Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern. We'll be doing Free Rider Friday. In the meantime, feel free to visit us at thesoulofenterprise.com. We will post full show notes on all of these Verisage laws that we discussed today. And remember that you can contact Ed or myself at asktsoe at verisage.com. Thanks for listening, folks. Have a great weekend. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.